Welcome to the Connection Church Athens podcast. Connection Church exists to connect all people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. If you live in the Athens area, we would love for you to join us in worship Sundays at 11. Or if you would like more information about our church, visit us online at connectionchurchathens.com. We look forward to meeting you. Good morning, everyone. Like they said, my name is Jamie. Uh, really looking forward to the opportunity and privilege to get into God's Word this morning. Uh, again, Ryan is one of our college students, very proud of these guys. Uh, we've got a, a good crew of about 25 or 30 sometimes that, that gather on Sunday evenings, and uh, they really bring me a ton of encouragement. And so I uh, wanted to get one of them up here to read our passage for us this morning. Uh, if you're in college, know somebody that is. Tonight is a great night to come. Friendsgiving is one of, my, one of the highlights of my year, right? We get to get some, some grandmother's recipes, right? Uh, but then we also get to get maybe some store-bought stuff for the college group. Uh, but it's a good time uh, to just come and hang out and fellowship. We'll also get into God's Word. So college students, 6 o'clock tonight, invite a friend. Uh, we'll see you all there. We really, you know, we keep it simple. We eat, we study the Bible, and it's just, it's funny how that just seems to work. Like, that's God's design uh, for discipleship, and when you keep things simple, uh, they really seem to really seem to enjoy it, and it seems to click. Uh, so again, really excited to continue our series in Romans this morning. Like Ryan just read for us, we're going to be in chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Uh, before we get into our text, I did just kind of want to back up and, and, and catch up just a little bit. You know, Romans has, has been unique in the sense that we're, we're going pretty slow and methodically through it, and so a lot of the, a lot of the messages kind of seem to build on each other, right? And so we're really kind of in the middle of an argument that Paul's making regarding God's wrath, right? And so we're going to back up. We'll catch up a little bit from chapter 1, chapter 2, and also what we're going to be covering next week, and hopefully it'll all paint a, a complete and cohesive picture. So if you remember back with me, Romans 1, just to catch up a little bit, Paul introduces himself, right? He tells them who he is, why he's writing. He tells them, uh, he tells them of this, this theme, uh, of, of the gospel in 16 and 17, which we established is really the thesis of the whole, of the whole letter, right? The thesis of the whole book, uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. But then starting in, starting in the middle of chapter 1, he immediately shifts to this idea of God's wrath, right? And we've been camped out in this idea of, of God's wrath for a couple of weeks. And so it's not exactly, uh, you know, sometimes you come to church, it feels like you're singing Kumbaya by a campfire. Other times you're learning about God's judgment and wrath, right? It's not necessarily... Uh, always the most fun passage to camp out in, uh, but, it's, but it's necessary. And so uh, the, the fact is we really have to understand, and, and Paul knows this, that's why he spends so much time and detail on it. We have to understand where we are in relation to God for the, gospel, for the goodness of the gospel to make any sense or for the gospel to have any appeal to us. And so really that's why Paul spends a lot of time here in, 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 in these first couple of chapters detailing God's wrath, explaining God's wrath, and why God is just... In, in having this wrath and this judgment of all people. Paul, Paul's explanation is how God judges people. And we, if you remember last week, we finished with verse 11. He says that God judges people impartially. And that's a really big uh, word. That's a really big theme that I want to spend some time to, uh, spend some time on rather. Um, and so what I want to do this morning, I want to start with a little bit of a story or an analogy because I, I'm going to refer to it Throughout this morning, uh, you guys are also going to be stuck with me next week, so I'll refer to it some next week. But I want to start this morning off with an example that really explains our relationship with God when it comes to, our, comes to His wrath. Because we see at the end of chapter 1, through chapter 2, and into the beginning of chapter 3, God reveals Himself 
to us in really three major ways. God reveals himself in how he, and Paul describes that the different ways that we all deserve God's wrath, right? Liam gave us this analogy a couple of weeks ago uh, about all of us being in the same boat. And so uh, typically stories like this uh, may start off with three guys walk into a bar, right? Uh, but we're going to go with three guys are going to ride in a boat. Uh, and I think, I, I think hopefully it'll make a little sense. So we got three guys, right? Three guys are riding on a boat. And I'm not talking about a, a yacht, right? This is not a, this is not a speed boat. Not even a bass tracker. I'm talking about like a John boat, like an old John boat, right? Three guys on an old, old John boat, doesn't even have a trailer motor in it, right? They're riding the boat, and they're out in the middle of the ocean, the middle of the Pacific Ocean somewhere. The first guy on the boat, he's a priest, right? He's got his fancy robe on. He's all decked out. He's got his leather-bound Bible he totes with him everywhere. He's got the big cross around his neck. He's always at church. He follows the rules. He's generous with his time. He's generous with his money. He's devoted his whole life to keeping the rules, right? Very religious guy. Next, you've got a, a blue-collar guy, just an just a average run-of-the-mill blue-collar guy. He's probably from the South. He's got his boots on. His hands are dirty and rough, right? He works hard. He pays his taxes. He loves his family. Never been in any real trouble. He, really, he loves Eric Church, right? He says, me and Jesus got that part worked out. Like That's the, that's the sense of his, of his theology. He, every now and then, he even goes to church himself, right? He gives a dollar to the homeless guy when he passes him from time to time. Every now and then, uh, you know, every now and then he'll give some money to the church to make himself feel good. He's just a solid, moral, down-to-earth guy, right? A guy's guy. And now we get to the last guy. The last guy on the boat, He's actually just got out on bond. He didn't have a father figure growing up, got into trouble as a kid, in and out of jail growing up. He's got a little bit of a drug and alcohol problem. He's been working to kick it. His ex-girlfriend's tattooed on his neck, but he's got a line through it because she was crazy, right? Uh, Y'all know this guy. Y'all know all three of these guys probably. Uh, We all know all three of these guys. And so the question I want to ask this morning is if these three guys are on a John boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, what do these three guys have in common? Or what, what's, what's true of all three of these guys? They're toast. Hopeless. No chance, right? The ship from Castaway is not coming. I know we've seen the movie. That's just Hollywood. They're either going to starve, they're going to get eaten by sharks, a wave's going to come swallow them up, something's going to happen. None of these three guys are going to make it regardless of what they look like or regardless of what their background's from, right? They all respond a little little differently to this situation they found themselves in. The priest, he's praying, right? He's, he's, He's leaning on his religion. He's spilling anointing oil everywhere in the boat, right? Uh, The blue collar guy, he's trying to figure out a way to fix the situation, right? He's gonna work hard and he's gonna fix it. He's gonna get out and paddle himself. He's gonna try to save everybody. And then finally, the criminal, right, he's just giving up. He's like, man, I got what I deserve. I don't know how I ended up on this boat. Uh, but he's depressed. He's defeated. He's just sitting there. He knows that he's getting, he's getting what he deserves, right? And so hopefully I've painted uh, a, a clear picture for us uh, with the story of these three guys on the boat. And so really a point that I want to make this morning is through all of the sentence structure and all of the Greek language, 
the homosexual passage. We're going to talk about some pronouns in a minute, not the kind that our world talks about, like actual pronouns. We're going to recognize how that shifts. But through all of this stuff, right, I don't want us to miss the punchline of what Paul is saying. Last week, this week, next week, Paul's telling us, look, it doesn't matter which one of these three guys you relate with the most. It doesn't matter which one of these three people you are. All of humanity is on a John boat in the middle of the ocean with no hope of survival. Unless something bigger, something outside of them, some sort of source of power outside of them comes and rescues them and saves us from God's just and well-deserved wrath. When we think of wrath, right, we tend to think of God as harsh or God as mean, right? Uh, Oh, that's the Old Testament God, but we've established that's not true. God doesn't change. J.I. Packer says it this way. He's a a theologian, a guy that, uh, if you haven't read him, he makes you feel a lot smarter, right? J.R. Packer says that God's wrath is right and is necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God is only angry when anger is necessary. And so God gives, te- God gives testimony three different ways. Uh, three different ways that God gives his testimony that give no excuse. Whether you're the priest, whether you're the blue-collar guy, or whether you're the convict, God has revealed himself in three different ways um, to all of these three people. So I've got, we've got them up on the screen already, I think. We're going to look at, Paul's going to show us how God gives testimony of himself first to the heathen, right? This is the convict. He gives testimony of himself through the heathen through creation, the hypocrite. This is the blue-collar moral guy, the hypocrite through conscience, and then the Hebrew through the commandments. And so if you remember back in chapter 1, right, Paul showed us that all people, Jews, Gentiles, didn't make a difference, right? They can all bear witness to his power and his majesty. They can bear witness to his sovereignty through what we define as general revelation. You guys remember Romans 1. We talked about general revelations. All creation is without excuse because we've seen the evidence of God. All people are witnesses. All people are beneficiaries of God's power through creation. And all are without excuse for rejecting him. Even people that have never been to church, never heard about God, never read a Bible, right? They've seen creation. God has revealed himself to all people through creation. This is the third guy on the boat, right? He just got out on parole. He's innocent. He's not, he knows he's not innocent, right? But he doesn't know where the ultimate source of truth is. This is also the unreached people groups that we talk about, right? They're out in the jungle. They're in these isolated places. They don't know, they don't know the truth. They've got no Bible, no gospel, nothing to point them in the right direction. But what Romans 1 taught us is, look, because all people are created in the image of God, there's something within us that when we look out at creation, right, when we look out at the Grand Canyon or a huge mountain range or we see the miracle of childbirth, or we see on the news a tornado or a hurricane or some crazy natural disaster, right? We all have this sense in us that recognizes there's something bigger, stronger, more powerful than us out there, something that's in control of the world, and we clearly are not in control, right? Ignorance is not an excuse. Has anybody heard that phrase before? Ignorance is not an excuse. Look, judgment is imminent. There's nothing that anybody can do to avoid it, regardless of background. So no matter what part of the world we're from, Uh, No matter what cultural background we have, no matter what mistakes we've made or haven't made in our past, nobody will be able to get to the end in judgment and say, and just shrug their shoulders and say, God, I didn't know. I'm sorry. Like, I didn't know, you know. Ignorance is not an excuse because we are all witnesses of God's power through creation. That's what we talked about in Romans 1, right? 
Then about the time we start feeling good about ourselves as church people, the language starts to shift a little bit. In chapter 2, Paul stops using pronouns like they and them, right? The people that are out there, that are outside of y'all. And he starts pointing the finger directly towards the Romans. He says, you. He's writing directly to the reader starting in chapter 2. If you remember with me, chapter 1, verse 5, right? Paul told the, he told the Romans in his introduction that he was an apostle. And he was called to bring the message of the gospel, not to the Jews or the moral people, right? Who was Paul called to bring the gospel to? The Gentiles. Paul was called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And look, he tells the Romans, there is no partiality with God. You moral people, you think you're better than the, sin, than the sinful Gentiles, right? Just because you have the law, think again. We're not as different as we think from the people in the world that don't have, that don't have Scripture. Because if God's standard of holiness leaves the Gentiles condemned, it leaves us just as hopeless because what did we learn last week? We do the same things that they do, right? We can't cast judgment on anyone because we do the same exact things. Everyone has exchanged the truth of God for a lie in one way or another. And that leaves us all short of the requirement of God's holiness uh, and God's perfect standard uh, of, of obeying his law perfectly. And so when we stand before God, we're all the same. We're all in the same boat. And so we see today, now we're going to finally get to chapter 12. I know I've kind of been uh, backing up and catching up. But we see today, God continues this argument for impartiality. Starting in verse 12, he, he brings the law into the equation, right? He brings in this idea of the law. Those that have the law, right, they're the Jews. And anybody that doesn't, they're the Gentiles. And so it's important for us to work out, because Paul spends some time on it, right? It's important for us to work out what role does the law play in our salvation? Or what role does, uh, does God's word for us, right? What does it play in salvation or the gospel? And so if you're taking notes, we're going to dive in. The first point this morning is that sin equals death, but the law does not equal the gospel. Sin equals death, but the law does not equal the gospel. Starting in verse 12, he says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law, right? So whether, we're in, whether we have the law or not, sin still equals death, right? Just having the law doesn't save us. We learn from this verse is that all people sin and all people deserve death. Everybody's on a John boat in the middle of the ocean. It doesn't make a difference. This is, the, this is what he means when he says there is no partiality with God. Let's keep reading in 13. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. So because no Jew or Gentile, right, outside of Christ, has perfectly lived out the requirements of the law, everyone stands condemned, right? With or without the law, everyone stands condemned because of sin. And listen, a lot of us take our Bibles very seriously. Uh, we take a lot of pride in our Bibles. And for us, guys, like, look, we're New Testament, New Covenant believers. This is, this is our law. When Paul's talking about the law, this is God's word for us. This is God's design. It's God's standard. It's, it's how we understand who God is, right? And listen, we should love our Bibles. I want to be very clear on this. We should love our Bibles. We should read them. We should know them. We should value them. But this book does not save us in and of itself. Just having this book, having access to this book, does not make us right before God in and of itself. 
The collective message of this Bible and placing faith in the message of this Bible is what saves people. Outside of the Holy Spirit, using God's Word as a spiritual tool or using it like a surgeon would use a scalpel on our hearts, right? Without some sort of life change happening, all this is is a collectional, uh, a historical collection of documents, right? That, that outside, of, outside of faith is not going to do anything for us. Until we place our faith in the message of the Bible, it will not save us by itself. Look back at the thesis of the whole book, right? Romans 1.16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation. Paul didn't say, I'm not ashamed of the law, right? He didn't say the law is the power of God for salvation. What's Paul's main point? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. He continues in verse 17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is from start to finish by what? By faith. When we get to chapter 3 in a couple of weeks, verse 21, Paul is going to tell us, look, there's a righteousness of God that is outside, has been made known outside of the law. So in verse 13, right, when it says that only those who obey the law can be declared righteous, we understand that to mean that, look, whether we have the law or not, the obedience is what makes us declared righteous. The obedience is what leads us to, uh, to stand righteous before God. And so look, Jew or Gentile doesn't matter. Nobody has the ability to stand on their own with or without the law without condemnation from God because he judges everyone impartially. Let's continue in verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 and 15, they continue this idea. All of humanity is without excuse. When we stand in judgment before God, this is the second form of testimony. Remember the second one earlier. God's testimony against the hypocrite is through conscience. The second point is that conscience and rebellion are universal. Conscience and rebellion are universal. This is the moral guy in the boat. This is the blue-collar guy. Maybe he's from Oglethorpe County or Madison County, right? I think we recognized him. He is the one that, that, that thinks his morality is what's good enough to save him. He thinks he can earn his way to salvation. Let's keep reading in verse 14. Verse 14 says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and other times defending them. So verse 14, if you read, if we look, verse 14 gives evidence to the statement that was made in verse 15. Because people who have never heard the law, right, they sometimes do things or sometimes will stand for things that are a part of the law, right? And so what, what Paul's saying is that gives evidence that God has gave, given us all a moral conscience. He's given us all some sense of moral compass and some sense of right or wrong whether we have the law or not. And that, I think that makes sense to us, right? We were all born with this innate sense of, of right or wrong on some level, um, with or without. You know, we, don't, we didn't need the Bible to tell us that some things are wrong, right? You can see, I can think of example, tons of examples of kids, right? You don't have to tell them something's wrong. They know when they did something was wrong. Some people's moral compass may be stronger than others, right? Uh, sin will distort everybody's conscience in some level, uh, but some people's may be distorted more, more or less. But everyone has some sort of moral compass just by being created in the image of God. And so really quick, before, before I dive much deeper into this conscience idea, I do want to make kind of an important distinction because there was, there was a verse that, that kind of 
came to my mind when you hear that word written, you know, written on people's hearts. There's a verse in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, where he says, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. But I want to make this distinction, right? Because we're talking about two completely different contexts of what's going on, even though the language is similar. So Jeremiah is talking about this prophecy for one day as New Testament believers, the Holy Spirit's going to come inside of us, right? And so at salvation, we will have the law written on our hearts. And so that's, that's designed to sanctify us. That's, defined, uh, that's designed to make us more like Christ, right? That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming into us. That's that surgery we were talking about a little bit earlier. But here in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 2, Paul isn't talking about salvation. He's talking about a context of unbelievers outside of faith. He's saying, look, he's, the, the goal of, of what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to rule out every possible way that a human thinks that they could earn their way to God or they could earn righteousness with themselves apart from faith in Christ. This is two very different ideas. The language is similar, but I did want to just point out that distinction because it can be easy to say, oh, written, you know, this must be a cross-reference, right, to Jeremiah. No, it's talking about two uh, different things. There's other verses that talk about that too. We were ta- that, that's talking about at salvation we receive the Holy Spirit, but Paul is talking about uh, in the context of unbelievers here, people that don't have faith, even they have some sort of conscience, some sort of moral compass uh, written on their hearts. Conscience is something that is in all people from birth, right? Regardless of how their faith is placed, whether they're a believer or not, everyone has some sort of conscience. And the reason why is because all people are created in the image of God, right? All people are created in the image of God. So therefore, because we are created in the image of God, we all have this idea of justice in us because it is a part of God's character. Um, The only difference is ours is flawed because of sin. Having a conscience, just like having the law that we described just a minute ago, having a conscience does not save us. Much like the law, the purpose of the conscience is just to make us aware that we need to be saved, right? The point of the law is to point us to the need for salvation. It doesn't save us in and of itself. An example of this, right, is uh, I wanted to give an example. It's, it's, it's like a murder of the innocent people, right? Murder of someone innocent. We don't, need, we don't need a law or a Bible to tell us that that's wrong, right? It's not just Christians, right, who get up in arms when, when senseless tragedies happen, it's everybody. It's most people. No matter how far away from God a society goes, people don't need someone to tell them that, that, that killing innocent people uh, is wrong. We don't even need the Bible to tell us that. It's something that's in us. We know that. Even in extremely isolated cultures and extremely isolated people groups, right? They, don't, they, they certainly don't have the Bible, but they, they, don't, they don't have even much civilization or law. Even in those types of, uh, of situations and circumstances, there's some sort of rule or some sort of law against uh, the killing of innocent people. It's something that's hardwired in all of us because we are created in God's image and he is just. It's also important, too, I think, to, to point out that part of the reason that there's a rule in every one of these cultures is because it's happened before, right? So just because we live in a civilized culture, we're exposed to more things. We're not the only ones that struggle with, with moral evil. Even isolated cultures they have rules against it, not, not only because they know that it's bad, but they have rules against it because it's happened before, right? Why are laws made? Why are rules made? Because they're in response to somebody doing something, and they were like, hey, this isn't such a good idea. Let's put a rule in place, right? 
just like we all have a conscience, just like we all have a moral compass, because we were created in God's image, we're also descendants of Adam, right? We're also descendants of Adam and Eve from the fall. We have sin inside of us that makes us feel things like guilt. It makes us feel things like shame when we do something that we know is wrong. The opposite's also true. Even people who are, who are far from God, who reject God, right? We can think of people like that. Even people that are far from God, that want nothing to do with God, they'll show some evidence of God's law in their life, right? People that aren't Christians will do things like feed the poor, feed the homeless, help the homeless, right? It's not just a Christian thing. It's called humanitarianism, right? Some people will honor their parents. Some, a lot of cultures that, have, that want nothing to do with Christianity, honoring their parents is a big deal. Stay married to one person, right? Other cultures do this. <clears throat> but what verse 14 is saying is, look, no matter what our standard of morality is, whether it's God's law or some sort of human, human, humanitarian law, man, I struggle with that word, some sort of humanitarian law that we make up kind of on ourselves or that's cultural, right? No matter what our standard is, we're always going to fall short of it. So if our standard is the law, then we'll be judged by the law. But if our standard is just to be a good person or to not break the rules, right, or not even break any laws, what Paul's saying is, look, we'll even fall short of that standard. The problem is with us. Paul says there is no partiality with God. He means that we will only be judged by the standard that we've been exposed to. So if we have the law, then we're judged by it, right? If we've heard, the, if we've heard God's word and we know it and we've been exposed to it, then that's what we'll be judged by. But if we don't, if we just have this version of justice, right, then that I'm not going to break any laws, then we'll just be judged by that. But Paul's saying we'll still fall short. So let's use that as an example, right? What if not breaking any laws is the moral standard that we've adopted? Just say, I'm not going to break any laws. I'm not going to hurt anybody. That's the only standard that we're going to be judged by for salvation. It gets easy to compare ourselves, right, to others and say, you know, I've never gotten a speeding ticket. Uh, I've never even gotten a, a moving violation or a parking ticket. Uh, this person is clearly hypothetical and not me if you look at my insurance uh, over the course of my life, but just for the sake of example. But our, what our pride and our sin will do is we'll say, hey, man, I'm better than those people out there. I don't have any tickets. I, don't, I haven't broken the law. I haven't hurt anybody, right? But then at the same time, God gives us this conscience. And what does our conscience tell us? I may not have any tickets, but how many times have I rolled through that stop sign? How many times have I made an illegal U-turn when nobody was there? How many times do I stay, over, stay five miles an hour over the speed limit, right? Because I know I'm not going to get caught. Our conscience tells us, hey, there's a standard out there that's higher that you know you could never achieve. Even if, even if you say, oh, I'm not going to break any laws. So when Paul says that sometimes our conscience defends us, right? And sometimes it accuses us, that's this mental battle that we all go through. This mental battle of, of morality, of struggling to find the standard. We try to justify ourselves by a, a subjective moral standard, but we know in our conscience that we will always fall short, no matter what standard we choose to live by. We all have this awareness that there's a higher standard out there, right? There's, there's somebody somewhere that never rolls through stop signs, but I know I will never be that guy, right? But God is impartial, I'm not going to be condemned by somebody else's standard. God's not going to condemn us by somebody else's truth. He's going to condemn us by the truth that we say we live by and fall short of because we have sin in us. We will fall short of whatever truth that we choose to live by, whether we're using God's standard or whether we're using our own. 
And so the goal again, right? Paul wants us to understand we are all way more alike than we think, than the days and the thems from chapter 1 to now the, in chapter 2 that the use, the pronouns that he's using, talking directly to the readers. Hearing the law doesn't save us. Only meeting the full requirement of the law can reconcile us to God. And there is only one person in the history of the world that has honored that truth, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Paul wraps this up in verse 16. This will take place on a day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. When all of our secrets, right, all of the secrets we have are judged, when all of these secrets are judged, we will not be surprised by the verdict. Paul is saying that with or without the law, if we rest in our morality, we're going to show up to judgment day and we'll know that we're not worthy. We're going to know we rolled through those stop signs, even though, even though we said the standard wasn't, just wasn't breaking the rules, right? We've all, we will all approach Christ on judgment day. And our conscience, if we're resting in our conscience and our morality, we're going to be stressed out. And we're going to be worrying. Have I done enough? Did I do too much, right? Did I do too much wrong? And so if you think about people that follow Christ and have faith in Christ and people that rest in their morality, really the only difference in them is that stress level of wondering, right? Because what do believers know? Believers know we don't stand a chance to stand in judgment in ourselves, right? Moral people stress out about it. Oh, maybe I did enough. Maybe I didn't. I need to go to church more. I need to do this. And we quickly become that, that hamster on a wheel, right? That's stressful. Nobody wants to live that way. Maybe the most important three words that Paul uses are thin. He says, as my gospel declares. That's the point. That's the punchline. Paul's presented the problem. The problem is that we're all going to be judged by a standard that we can never meet. And there is only one solution. The last point this morning uh, for the notes, the third point, is that the gospel is the only hope for all human rebellion. For all human rebellion. Whether we rebel against creation and God's natural order for things that we talked about in Romans 1, whether we rebel against our conscience and our, our own sense of morality that we create within ourselves, or like we'll discuss next week, right? If we rebel against God's commandments, God's commandments that He's given to us, that He's revealed to us in Scripture, God is going to judge all three of these types of people equally, justly, and impartially. Paul says that we will be judged through Christ. It's like God has Jesus-shaped lenses on, right? And anybody who doesn't meet that requirement does not, get to, does not get to move forward. So whether we rebel against creation, right? Whether we make up our own standards, we will all be judged through Christ. Christ is the standard for salvation. He was present at creation. He never violated God's, God's design. He had perfect morals. Jesus never made a decision that he regretted. They didn't have traffic laws, I don't think, in Jerusalem. Jesus never rolled through a stop sign, right? He never went five miles an hour. He was, he was completely perfect. And uh, he also per uh, perfectly fulfilled the law that was revealed in the Old Testament, right? So by the same token, no matter what way, we, no matter what way Christ is, is judged on, on all three of these categories, Christ will always stand correct and he will always stand justified. He checks all the boxes and we can't check any of them. We fail the test at every single level. And so what that does is this takes the stress away, right, for the moral person that's described here. There's no reason for us to try to earn salvation on our own because we know we're not even close. There's only one way to avoid this stress. It's when we get to the end and, and, and we cannot have that nagging question of, oh, man, like, did I do enough? Did I serve enough? Did I go to church enough? Did I give enough? Or did I do too much, right? 
Is my sin too much? We don't have to have that stress. And the reason we don't have to have that stress is because God in his mercy made a way for us to be adopted into his family through, sanctif- through sacrificing his one and only son, Jesus. And that satisfies the wrath that we've talked about uh, for two weeks and going to continue for a couple of more, right? That sacrifice satisfied the wrath that Paul is going so in detail to. Jesus is the only way. Not doing more, right? Not, not changing our behavior now, right? Not practicing this belief or practicing that belief. The only way to be a child of God and to be reconciled to God is to accept Christ's payment on our behalf and trust that it's enough to reconcile us to God and to stand before Him on Judgment Day clean and clear and justified. I think one thing to point out too is, you know, we want to be a church that really focuses and stands on the Great Commission. And so I think when you read a passage like this, it's really hard uh, not, to, not to read passages like this and think of the unreached and think of the people that don't have the law and don't have the gospel. We want to pray for an unreached people group every week. And it's hard, it's hard to read passages like this and not think about those people that don't have the gospel. When we realize how blessed we are to have the message of the gospel and we have people that are equipped to explain it, it's so hard not to be burdened uh, to take the gospel to other places. And so whether, you know, really it doesn't matter if these places are across town or if they're across the world or across the country, we can all agree, I think, that the need is undeniable. The need is around us, but the need is also vast outside of us. This message has and will continue to change the world. That's what we know because of Scripture. We may not feel that way all the time, but God's promises are true. This message will continue to change the world. So how selfish would we be to just keep it to ourselves? How selfish would we be to understand that we are, we are bankrupt before Christ and He put enough in our account to make us right? Then we did nothing to deserve it. When we get to Romans 10, we're going to see, on a basic level, all we really need to see the kingdom of God move forward is the gospel message and somebody to preach it, and somebody to tell it. And so at the end of the day, God's word teaches us there's really only two kind of people in the world. That's Paul's goal here. He wants to, he wants to tell us, look, it don't matter which, where you're sitting at in the boat. It don't matter what clothes you're wearing, what kind of life you lived. There's only two kind of people in the world. There are those that have accepted the gospel, that have placed faith in the gospel, <clears throat> that are now called to be Christ's agents of grace, right? Christ's agents uh, in the Great Commission and take the gospel to those who don't have it. And there's those who have not accepted it. There's those that are relying on their own sense of morality, their subjective moving target of, oh, I feel good today, I don't feel good tomorrow. They're relying on something other than Christ when the day of judgment comes. It's the only two kind of people there are in the world. So I'm going to ask the band if they'll, if they'll come up. We'll be wrapping up here in just a minute. We'll have a little bit of a time of response. And so really during this time of response, I want to just ask a couple of pretty, pretty simple, straightforward and direct questions. That's how I tend to operate. Things get complicated. I'm probably not your guy. I like it to be simple. First question is this. Do you know the gospel? Have you placed faith in what Jesus did when he came to earth as a man 2,000 years ago? He died on the cross. He paid the penalty for us. He conquered death through the resurrection. Do you trust that message with your life? That's the first question. If you don't, 
Do not let another Sunday or another day period, do not let that go by without making that decision and getting that part right. It's the only way to have hope and peace. Because if your faith is in your morals, if your faith is in your performance, if your faith is in that moving target, you're on a jumbo in the middle of the ocean. Ship from Castaway is not coming. Right? Don't matter what you look like, what you act like, where you've been, where you're from. We're on a John boat in the middle of the ocean if we don't place faith in that truth. The gospel can rescue you from that faith. Like we sang earlier, right? We've witnessed it. I've seen it. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in the life of a ton of others. I want to see it in more people's life. That's why we're here as a church. Don't let another Sunday go by without getting that part right. We can take away the stress of constantly worrying if we've done enough and if we're good enough by placing our faith in the gospel. The second question is this. It's also pretty simple. If you have accepted the gospel, if you understand the gospel, what are we doing with it? Are we being obedient to what God wants us to do? Are we executing the Great Commission? Are we living out our faith? Are we, are we, are we growing deeper in our own relationship through discipleship? That's some of the ways that, you know, this can play out. What are we doing with it? Or are we sitting on it? Are we keeping it to ourselves? Are we showing up and going through the motions? Just resting on our, our, on our uh, security. Hopefully we will live intentional lives, right? I want Connection Church to be characterized not by a building, not by a logo, but by a culture of, of people that take the gospel serious. People that live intentional lives in hopes of seeing the gospel spread, in hopes of seeing the kingdom of God grow, not only here in Athens, but to the ends of the earth, to the nations. We would love to partner with you in that mission as your church. We would love to partner with you. And the possibilities are endless. A lot of you guys have a whole lot better ideas than I've got, or even Liam's got, right? There's a ton of ways we can further God's kingdom, but we can't do it by ourselves, right? We will have a greater effect if we join together as the people of God, armed with the gospel, armed with the truth of the gospel, taking it to our community and taking it to the nations. I don't want to just be another group of Christians that hangs out for an hour on Sundays. It's not why we're here. I want to be a true biblical community that partners together to see the gospel spread. So I'm going to pray, uh, and we'll, we'll finish with our song of response. If you want to talk to somebody, we'll have an elder down front. I'll be down here. If you need to make a decision for Christ, love to see it. Or if you just want prayer, this is a time of response. We can do that. I love you guys. Thank you for listening to me. I'm going to, have a, uh, I'm going to close this in prayer, and then we'll sing together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, I thank you that it may not always be what we want to hear, God, but it's what we need to hear. God, some of the harshest times of, of what we think are judgment and what we think is God up there with a magnifying glass right over the anthill, those are some of the deepest and most refining and greatest times of growth. And so, God, I pray that when we hit those points in Scripture, that they would be just that. God, I pray that they would lead us to lay down our idols, to fight the sin that, that, that tempts us and so easily entangles us, as your word says. And God, I pray that we would just rest in it, lie in it, soak ourselves in it, God, 
and know that you love us and that you're good and your character does not change on good days or bad days. God, I pray for those that feel like they're out on a boat in the middle of the ocean with no hope. But God, you are the ship that can come by and rescue and only by your power. God, I thank you for that. And I just pray that that truth would change the lives of people here. And God, you would use the people here to take that truth away from here to make an impact for your kingdom. God, we lift all this up in the name of Jesus. Amen.